Welcome to Data Skeptic. Data Skeptic brings you discussions about how data is changing our world. Our interviews are conversations with thought leaders in topics like data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. I gave a few talks last year and wrote a little bit on the dataskeptic.com blog about my experience researching and building a chatbot, you know, surveying the landscape of options and speculating a bit about what the future is going to be like. I don't usually like to speculate too much on the show, but here goes anyway. Chatbots are the user interface of the future. To some of you, that might not sound all that revolutionary, but I might mean that more broadly than you're thinking. I think eventually pretty much every website will have a chatbot. Why? Well, for starters, ask my bank, who insists upon changing their user interface every six weeks or so, such that when I need to do something simple, the way that I did it previously no longer works, and I've spent 20 minutes figuring out why it's different. If they had had a chatbot, I would have tried to bark a few quick commands at it to see if it could do what I wanted. Actually, that's a lie. I know the current state of chatbots, not to mention the lack of technical expertise at my particular bank, so I wouldn't even expect the chatbot to work well. The chatbot landscape is littered with clickbait, hype, and chatbots that don't really need to be chatbots. But just past the hype wave are a few interesting applications. We'll talk about some examples in today's show. What's interesting to me about chatbots, and why I think they'll eventually be ubiquitous, is how many degrees of freedom natural language gives us. I can throw down some mean Linux commands when I need to. I love the command line for its versatility. But I don't think too many of the next generation are going to learn about grep, set, and awk. Describe exactly what you want, in whatever terms you want, and get a response. What could be better? Google is a bit like this for certain things. My Google Assistant can add a new appointment to my calendar almost perfectly well. But it can't readjust my calendar when an important meeting is moved, causing a cascade of other updates to need to happen. Updates that bear with them consequences and people I, you know, are more or less likely to want to offend by changing. I need an assistant for that who is trained in all the unspoken constraints of my time and preferences. Or eventually, maybe I'll have an agent who can learn those constraints. If the technology can get there, there's no better way to handle ad hoc abstract requests of your machine. And the technology is getting progressively closer. My name is Vince and I'm affiliated with IB.ai. Can you tell me a little bit about what IV.ai does? Sure. Yeah, we are a company that focuses strictly on machine learning, and we build ML out for other companies. We tend to get brought in on things that have to do with language. We have a, a specialty when it comes to language understanding. It can go from something quite high touch that is kind of very consultative to being something that's just people using and licensing our software. We'll be hearing more from Vince today about a chatbot IV.ai built for Sony Pictures called The Red Queen as part of their promotional efforts for Resident Evil, the final chapter. Before we get into that application, let me introduce our other guest for today, Heather Shapiro. So I uh, work primarily on bots and cognitive services, machine learning, work with the community, developers, startups, students, trying to get them onto Microsoft platform. That's the Microsoft bot framework specifically which is one of many ways you can build your own chatbot. We're about to hear about a chatbot application Heather worked on, but before we do, should I give a definition of a chatbot? Is that really necessary? A chatbot is just a console interface that you can type into and get text back, or maybe pictures or video. You get content back. Could be on SMS or Skype or anything. Chatbots may or may not have speech-to-text and text-to-speech involved, like Siri and Google Assistant do. Anyway, 
onto the application. One that I talked about yesterday, I've been working with Cornell Medical School, their Institute of Precision Medicine. They have thousands of genes that they're looking at for cancer detection and genes and variants and interpretations, and it's really time critical. Their doctors and clinicians have to go through this website to that they have a knowledge base, and it takes a lot of time for them. So we spent a week hacking with them, a few of our developers and a few of their developers, and we created a bot that they're using now in Skype and in Teams. So essentially, the clinician can just ask, find EGFR, it's a gene. So it shows all of the interpretations for that specific gene and all of the variants that are related to that. So it saves the researchers some time there and they can get back to their patients, which is pretty cool. Uh, Sony Pictures came to us for Resident Evil, which was the the final film in the chapter. Um, So we went away and came up with this concept around taking this character from the film that was called the Red Queen. In the film, she was this like fictional AI character. And then we wanted to turn her into real AI so that the fans of the film could have an engagement with her and have some kind of like a dialogue with her and have a feel kind of like they were getting closer to this, this character that they love and make it really fun and playful. So so the first version of that was to kind of have this natural feeling conversation where the fans could communicate with her and it feels really interesting. And then there were a few different game dynamics that we applied to that to make it feel like it could be something that would be um, would uh, be really sticky for the users as well. Um, so what we ended up doing to kind of facilitate the AI part that we could actually say we were you know turning this character into AI is we took the scripts from the film and there were like six films and then trained. Um, a model on uh, generating new scripts for the character it was just like a Markov model. And then through that output, looked at the, the the outputs that made sense through the training and obviously finding other training data online and trying to get enough of a robust set to do something interesting. Then took the output of the model, took it to the studio. Studio goes, yes, approved. This is good. This is bad. This is good. This is bad. They took these AI generated scripts and then the ones that they approved were worked into a conversational flow. And then the fans of the film ended up playing a game against this character. The game was very structured and very decision tree based, but the lines they were engaging with from the character were actually generated by the Smartcop model. That was kind of like a workaround where anytime you have the word AI or anytime you have machine learning in there, people kind of get freaked out they're worried about how it's going to move through. In this case, it was part of the promotional mechanic that they were trying to deploy for their project, but it was a way for us to achieve that without actually raising too many alarm bells. Do you have any guidelines on what's a a useful bot? What are uh, some of the problems we can solve more effectively as a bot and through conversation than a web form, let's say? One scenario that I've worked on, like a little over a year ago that I was working on at the White House, we were doing a foster care initiatives hackathon. Our project was for pregnant and parenting teenagers who were dealing with substance abuse. For these women, most of them are very afraid. They're often alone. They don't have constant internet connection. They might not have someone they can speak to. So we created a chat bot that was a counselor bot, and it would provide them resources and it could be something that, yes, they could go on and search in a search engine, but it gave them the feeling as if they were talking to a counselor or gave them, like, as if they had a confidant that they could be like, oh, where can I find that, like, Narcotics Anonymous group or that AA group? When's the next meeting? What, where is it? The goal for the bot is to be proactive and say, hey, did you go to that meeting? Did you do this? Here's some nutrition guidelines for, like, pregnancy and all these different things. 
Interesting. So this application is different from the first two. It's presumably managed over SMS and sort of asynchronous, or at least a a long-form conversation, unlike the game of the Red Queen or maybe the doctor looking up the information or even the chatbot that we've been working on that's now available at dataskeptic.com. It can help you find episodes, answer some very basic customer service questions. We're still working on that. It can tell you a little bit about the staff of Data Skeptic, and it's got a few fun Easter eggs as well. Those of you on our mailing list should already have known this because the blog post describing how we built the bot was the feature of the week this Monday. If you're interested in our feature of the week, get on the mailing list at dataskeptic.com. You can also check out our chatbot there. Let's get into how you build these sorts of things. What are some of the tools available? Yes, so it's, um, we've ended up building a, a conversational, it's kind of a performant modular enterprise framework. It allows for multi-dimensional trees, allows for uh, many developers to work across the same project and focus on different pieces of business logic for their apps. It's not tied to any like particular service, so it can work across whatever output we want or whatever channel we're looking at without tweaking any of the, any of the core framework. We have a proprietary ML stack that is um, really good at making sense of language. And we also have this like conversational framework, which we're going to talk about today, which um, enables us to have lots of conversations at scale with lots of people in the lab environment and be able to keep track of the state of all the users as they speak to us and how we manage all that workflow. Companies like Vince's have built their own frameworks in order to facilitate the specific needs and advanced types of things they want to integrate into what they're building. There are a lot of other generalized platforms available as well, such as the Microsoft Bot Framework mentioned previously. Yeah, so the Bot Framework, it's an SDK, actually, um, in C Sharp or Node. And there's also a bot service in the Azure portal that allows you to, um, it accelerates the process of making a bot. It will give you different templates for creating a bot in, in either of these SDKs. Essentially, it just allows you to create different dialogues using the SDK um, to go back and forth and have that communication with a user. When the chatbot landscape kind of took off, I think that, you know, everybody and their sister and their brother went out and made chatbot platforms. And pretty much every country had kind of 40 or 50 chatbot platforms where everybody went and raised kind of like, you know, one to $10 million, went out, built a platform. And then we're like, great, here you go. We have this framework and you can build a chatbot. And then everybody went and built pretty rubbish chatbots. And then obviously that wasn't a very good experience for the consumer, for anyone that was looking to engage with a, a business or a brand or, or a celebrity or whatever. And I think that was kind of a classic example of a hype cycle kind of carrying through this momentum of this thing that pushes a technological uh, hype machine that doesn't equate to something the users want or, or need. And so most of those companies have now either fallen by the wayside or are doing something else. And the reason that that was the case is because if the experience that you're creating for someone isn't as good or as useful as just going and doing a Google search or finding the information out another way, then why would they go and sit through some kind of decision tree in order to get there? It doesn't make sense logically. I think one of the ways that the market is settled based on that piece of learning is kind of what is the utility factor that's being added by using chat? And whether that's a chat bot or that's chat on the homepage or that's someone communicating through SMS, how do you use that engagement to really super serve whoever it is that is looking for information? And, and why should they be doing that through chat versus doing that through another channel? It's important to have to make sure you have like a very strict, not strict, but like 
focused goal because a lot of people try to create a whole AI. Mm -hmm. So something like Cortana, something like Siri or Alexa, that's a great goal, but it's extremely complicated. (laughs) You can easily add these intents. Um, You just go in and say, oh, I want to have one for shipping or I have one for receiving a package, something like that. And it will be the exact same as if you were to click add a pre-built domain. But I always caution people, make sure you actually like need these intents or make sure you're not like setting too far of a lofty goal. Make sure not to have too open-ended of a question for the bot because it can't answer everything. Right, right. Yeah, that's a lesson I learned very early on when I started tinkering with creating a bot. We actually launched something quietly on the site last year, and it was pretty ambitious, and ultimately I rolled that back and took a much simpler approach. The concept of intents that Heather mentioned was very helpful. This comes up a lot in bot design. An intent is an abstract idea of something a user would want to do. A classic example might be to book a... There's many questions necessary to do that, one of which is something like, you know, what time should we have it? Now, as you know, computers want things in a very specific format, but human beings, we speak in a lot of variety on time. I might say now, in five minutes, yesterday, the day before my wife's birthday. Maybe the bot wouldn't get the last one, but intents nonetheless. If I can identify the user's intent, I can often just route them to a very specific subsection of the code or even an external service which handles specifically and exactly just that. Yeah, so Lewis is one of our cognitive services. Cognitive services has, I think, 30 APIs right now. So there are different machine learning APIs from speech to text to vision, all different ranges. And so Lewis is language understanding and creates machine learning models for natural language processing. And essentially with Lewis is you go in and you add different utterances. So an utterance will be what's the weather in New York today? Someone could say that as what's the weather in New York today, or they could also say what's the weather here? Mm -hmm. And since we're in New York, the bot should know it means New York. So there's different ways that people will say things. The intent there would be, what's the weather? Find weather. So Lewis, when you put in all those intents and all those utterances, it will create a model that will automatically be able to determine that that's what you're trying to get the bot or the computer to recognize. Mm -hmm. You don't have to put in every single phrase that someone might say. So people can now say different things and it will be able to figure that out. There's a whole set of pre-built domains and they're constantly trying to add more. So even ones like medical industry, they're looking to try to build a corpus for that. So one of the problems that we had with Cornell was especially for speech-to-text, things like CT scan, when you put it through speech-to-text, it automatically thinks it's C-T, like I see tea that I drink. Let's talk a little bit more about the development process. Do you spend a lot of time in ideation and then get down to coding, or is it iterative development where you try different things and see how they work out? For us, because it's part of our core tech, we tend to go and and do the development once it's really well um, isolated as far as what the scope is of the project and, and what it looks like. For us, it's kind of everything is organized from a creative point of view and then goes into development. Well, some people like Vince can be very well organized and plan ahead. I've never been the type. So when I set out to do my chatbot, I just started hacking away. And I had the experience that many first-time bot builders do. I want to give a quick shout out to Dave Mathias from MyManalytics. He put a bot together to help support some of the great conferences they put on. And as I recall, I think the first person who went to talk to it asked a question that the bot just wasn't equipped for, despite quite a bit of preparation on their part, making sure it answered a bunch of clever things. 
cutting it closer to home, shout out to Adam C., who's one of the first people to check out the dataskeptic.com chatbot. His utterance of, I want to buy a shirt, was responded to with, try one of these choices. Episode recommendations, listener survey, store, or profiles. Adam replies, can you take me to the store? Bot replies, I didn't understand you. Please try again or say exit. Clearly, we're a ways off from the Turing test. Like we've all experienced this before, where you you're calling up and you're angry and you're like in some kind of customer service funnel on your phone and you just want to speak to someone and you're like right. operator, operator, and they're like, "It's so nice to have you here. It's lovely today. I hope you're having a nice day. We'll be with you shortly. Please listen to this music while I talk <laughs> over it, and then we'll see what happens in a second after I finish speaking. Yeah. I'm going to finish speaking now." I hope you're okay. <laughs> Talk to you soon. It's kind of like really overwritten. Like, like you know, you can tell it's been, it, it's been written by someone who is thinking about making sure that they're being as polite and nice as possible. But the signal that they're receiving is operator, 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 speak to a human, speak to a human. I think it can be much more frustrating when you are trying to cram in this false politeness and hoping that this somehow satiates the anger of the person on the other point. But it does exactly the opposite. Either give them three tries, kind of like, oh, maybe you meant this, or try again, I wanted a number, or... So I'm inclined to call this user interface design, but I'm not totally sure. If, is that the right way to label it? Definitely, yeah. In the same way that, you know, you can see it on, on a social channel where someone has, a, you know, a really well curated social channel where the way that they communicate feels natural and it feels like you get their character. And then you have corporate social channels where it just feels really dry. And where's that fine line and, and what can you get away with? And then how can you best you know, serve the customer in this case? We're going to take a quick break from this episode, and Linda's going to tell us a bit about our sponsor for this week, Warby Parker. The first thing I noticed at the Warby Parker eyeglass stores was how stylish they were and their low prices starting at $95 for prescription eyeglasses, a third of the price of standard prescription eyewear and frames. Basically, Warby Parker sells glasses directly to consumers, which cut costs and save me money. I admit it, I first started buying Warby Parkers because I was cheap, but then something happened. This was five years ago, and since then, they have released more stylish frames, especially ones that are lighter and fit my small face. And plenty of people have complimented me on my Warby Parker sunnies. I order both my prescription sunglasses and eyeglasses exclusively from Warby Parker. And I love them. The most unique feature is the risk-free home try-on experience. Go online, pick five pairs to try on, they ship it to your door, this is all free, and then you get to try them on. If you're me, you ask Kyle's opinion. There's no salesperson pressure looking over your shoulder. There's no overly flattering lighting skewing your perspective. And you get to make your decision hassle-free at home and mail them back. And that's free. And there's no risk of buying a pair that don't make you look good. Visit warbyparker.com slash data. That's warbyparker.com slash D-A-T-A to start your free home try-on experience today. So in building the data skeptic bot, the design philosophy I've really kind of learned from talking to these two is keep it simple and try and control the conversation. Unless I want to build my own artificial general intelligence, which, you know, maybe we'll get to that eventually. If I want a fluid, seamless experience for users, I should work on making the bot focused, but naturally focused. 
try and lead the conversation, essentially. Let the bot always be asserting something and let the user kind of respond in kind. I don't know that I can anticipate everything a user might type, but we'll keep logs of that and we'll make iterative improvements with time. In fact, you'll hear about some of those improvements on the show as we make tweaks to the bot. The cool part is, since I respond in text, the sky's the limit on what theoretically the bot might be able to help you do. There's also cards. There's carousel cards that also have buttons. Mm -hmm. So if you want to display images or visuals, the bot can display them that way. You know, the internet has trained us and trained our instincts to be more button-based. I guess maybe it started before that with magazines and kind of newspapers where we're thinking about things in relation to their physical form. And then we're taking that input of this physical thing we're seeing to inform our decision-making process. As the internet evolved, those button-based ways of approaching understanding or asking questions or buying something or engaging with external sources from ourselves have trained us to get really good at that. So I don't know what that swap will look like, what that divide looks like. If it tends to become something so seamless that it just becomes conversational and we say exactly what's important to us and get it, or if the internet has started has done so much work of shaping the way we think about how we communicate that buttons and kind of like multiple choice functionality now so ingrained in who we are and how we think about our decision making that it becomes second nature. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. So a bot isn't just about chat necessarily. It can also share multimedia type ideas, maybe even control things for you. I wanted to bring some of those concepts into our bot. I put in something similar to what Heather was talking about, the cards that are available in the Microsoft bot framework. Ask the bot to tell you about the profiles of the hosts of the show, myself, Linda, our bird Yoshi, some of the writers for the site. The bot will respond with an image and a little bio. Again, a gimmick, but a little demonstration. Why are chatbots becoming a major topic today and not a decade ago? I think uh, WeChat has had a lot of a lot of success with chat, and I think that's driving a lot of the cultural understanding across different messaging platforms. Tech companies that are doing really well with chat are clearly wanting to make chat more relevant for every decision that you're going about as a, as a consumer, because then their platforms are worth more and more valuable to the overall thread. Also, I think that we're just spending more time inside of chat. Generally, it's our user behavior is becoming more and more chat focused. We're spending more time on chat speaking to our friends and we're spending on social media now. That trend, I think that change happened just over a year and change ago where where that, that switch happened, where it's actually becoming the majority of our time is sitting in chat, which means that in order to monetize on channels like that, we need to figure out ways of uh, communicating uh, seamlessly with the customer and being able to do that at scale. And the, uh, the only way we're able to do that is if we actually are investing in that infrastructure. I think the fact that everyone's already using these different platforms and channels is that makes it such a great time to be able to use um, like the bot framework because so people are already on Facebook Messenger, people are already texting. So the fact that you can write this code once and then deploy it anywhere makes it super easy to reach millennials, to reach different generations and markets. People are already using these technologies and are texting nonstop or on their phones and social media nonstop, so why not target that community that already knows how to how to do that? So we put together the bot you can find at dataskeptic.com with the help of Zhao Fei Zheng, who worked on that for a few months with me. Also, one of my developers, Gleb, really made a big impact on getting this out onto our site. 
But I was wondering, what does it take for a more significant bot than what we have so far to be put together? Um, yeah, it kind of depends on the project. We usually have five engineers working on each project. Um, and they kind of vary from like front end to back end to an ML to uh, someone who's like more full stack and managing it from a product point of view. We are based in London, Los Angeles, and Toronto. Yeah, we are actively hiring and always looking for people that are great. ML engineers with a focus on NLP um, or full stack engineers who are excited about ML, looking to get further into it, spend more time on it, right from juniors up to more senior people. Uh, they go to ivy.ai or they could come and find us on Twitter. It's at the AI agency. Let's get some final thoughts on where this whole chatbot thing might be going. I think the biggest change will be the speech component. We're starting to see that already with like Alexa skills and Cortana skills, how they will really contribute to our everyday lives. Like if you ask Cortana or Alexa, like, what can I, what skills can I use? They're like, oh, we can play Jeopardy or something like that. And you're like, all right, that's great. But like, how is that really going to help? What I need to think about on the day to day so that I can do more of like my job or like enjoy my life. I think that's really what we're going to see of either more in tune with your calendar, your commute. You see it in the home, like with like Nest or there's a bot that will you can turn on your oven or your coffee maker at a certain time. Well, call me old-fashioned, but sometimes I just want to press an actual physical button that I can feel rather than have to unlock my phone, go into an app, and turn my stove on that way. Huh. Although, you know, asking the bot, hey, did I remember to turn the stove off? That's not bad. Maybe, hey, I'm running late. Can you preheat it for me? All right, I talked myself into it. Now, is that user interface... Or is that a chatbot? I guess the bot part comes into play when there's an agent of some kind. When rather than just barking commands at the machine and expecting a pretty prescribed response, we start asking the machines to figure things out for us. In order for a machine to do that, it really does require some level of intelligence. In fact, holding a conversation seems to be amongst the most difficult of problems we might ask a machine to work on. As you'll learn very quickly talking to the data skeptic bot, as of today, in March of 2018, it's not that much of a conversation partner. It's got a few fun tricks and a couple of Easter eggs, but we're going to need to invest a lot of time into it. Next week on the podcast, we're going to talk to some people who already have invested quite a bit of time in building conversational agents. In fact, there's a whole prize given out to the best conversational agents. Join us again next week to hear more about that. Data Skeptic is a listener-supported program. To support the show, visit dataskeptic.com and click on the membership tab. <laughs>